Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. I'm Arthur Snell. We've reached the end of this third season, and thank you for sharing the journey with me. Together, we've been through drone wars, climate crisis in the Sahel and the Arctic, not to mention the conflicts in the Middle East and political chaos in America. But from the first episode to this last, everything has been happening in the shadow of the war in Ukraine. In episode one, we spoke about a world collapsing into chaos, and we heard from Ukrainian journalist Romeo Kokriatsky about the lived experience of war. Here's Romeo describing the moment he decided to leave his Kyiv home. Things change once you actually hear the booms of air defense systems. At the time, there was no way to tell how effective the Russian siege of Kyiv was going to be. So after kind of two days of um, hearing these far-off explosions, and they weren't even that far off. They were a couple of dozen kilometers north of us at best. Uh, we just packed up all the stuff that we were going to take and then boarded literally the first train going west. We didn't care where exactly it went. The station was actually shaking because the explosions had gotten uh, close enough. and We didn't look at a schedule or care about um, what train was going where. We just needed to get as far away from Kiev as possible. What this year has taught us above all is that the Ukrainian people will not be defeated. Despite even the war, Ukrainians are pretty fiercely optimistic about the future. Everyone constantly talks about their plans. Uh, whatever it is, people believe in a future, I think maybe for the first time um, in decades. Like Romeo, we also want to look to the future with hope. What does this mean for Ukraine, for Russia, and for Europe? As we ask how, after Ukraine, we can remake the world. You know, knowing that I'm not alone, Ukrainian people fighting so hard for Ukraine. 
brain to survive and for your brain to have a right to exist as an independent, free, and democratic state. That's what gives me your strength. I'm Arthur Snell. I was a diplomat in some of the most troubled places on planet Earth. And now I'm here to investigate the threats of today and warn you about the dangers of tomorrow. This is Doomsday Watch. There were many who concluded there would be no stopping Putin once troops began their march into Ukraine on February the 24th. I had my doubts. But Ukraine has stood strong. Back in November of 2021, with Russian troops already massing on Ukraine's border, the debate raged. Was this all a bluff, or would Russia march into Ukraine and end its independence? Almost nobody was saying that Ukraine would fight and hold out. And then, Kyiv-based journalist Olga Tokaryuk wrote an insightful article about Ukraine and what it would do when faced with Russian onslaught. Here's a bit of what Olga said. I quote, I have been speaking to members of the Ukrainian military in recent days. They sounded surprisingly calm. Russia attacked Ukraine back in 2014, and since then, we have always thought that it could escalate at any time. There will be no recognition of Russian annexation of Crimea, no autonomy for the occupied Donbass, no backtracking on Ukraine's path to EU and NATO. We are ready for war and will fight to the last soldier. How right she was. Since then, Olga has been a leading voice spreading the message of Ukrainian resilience across the world. I spoke to her just over a year after she had published that piece and asked her what inspired her foresight. Yeah, it's extraordinary. You know, I still have this article pinned in my Twitter profile because it's still relevant. And uh, back then when I wrote it, actually one of my motivations was that a lot of analysis that I've seen about Ukraine, you know, the predictions, what will happen if Russia will invade, was so flawed and was so inaccurate and wasn't reflecting the mood on the ground in Ukraine that I thought, well, you know, I have to provide this different perspective, the perspective from inside Ukraine, the way Ukrainians feel, and also to kind of make a summary of all those changes that have been happening in Ukraine since 2014. Because I think that's ultimately what led to this very flawed analysis of how the war will go. Yeah. You said something very important, I think, which is about the impact of the revolution of dignity. A question I have is, and this this may seem like a strange question, but did it need Russia to do that to Ukraine in 2014 for this transformation to occur? Yes, in a way, absolutely. I think it was always there in the 1990s. It was always there in, in early 2000s. But I think like Russia really overplayed its hand starting from 2013 with uh, Yanukovych and his refusal to sign the agreement with the European Union. And then the brutality of his police against uh, peaceful protesters, against students who were beaten up. And then the all of Ukrainian population just rose up to that corrupt regime. And it was very clear, I think, to everyone in Ukraine that none of that would have happened, the annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbass wouldn't have happened without direct military intervention by Russia. And of course, you know, since then, there is no future with Russia. You know, the the only future for Ukraine and the only way to preserve Ukrainian state, Ukrainian sovereignty, is to continue um, its uh, Euro-Atlantic 
on the Euro-Atlantic path. And we are seeing that reflected in the opinion polls, because whereas uh, back in 2013, less than half of Ukrainians supported its integration with NATO and just over half with the, Europe with the European Union, now both uh, figures are more than 80%, so closer to 90% of Ukrainians support the integration of uh, the country with the EU and NATO. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. This war isn't over. Russia hasn't been defeated yet. Europe's caution, Germany's sluggishness in providing weapons to Ukraine, France's desire to be a balancing power, combined with a severe energy and economic crisis hitting the UK and Italy particularly, all those things could still hand victory by default to Russia. I'm Jeremy Cliff. I'm the writer at large at The New Statesman. I'm based in Berlin and I write primarily about Europe and global geopolitical affairs. Much of Jeremy's recent work has been probing the question of Europe, its ability to confront the global challenges it faces. I asked Jeremy about one of his most recent articles on French President Emmanuel Macron's foreign policy. Uh, Jeremy, if I can quote from that, Macron's approach to foreign policy starts from the conviction that ours is a chaotic, dangerous and Hobbesian world. He's right, isn't he? Yes, actually. And that's one of the conclusions I come to in, in that essay, that much as one can criticise elements of Macron's foreign policy and his approach, I think he's right. And, and, and in fact, the French political establishment has been right for quite a while about in how it sees the world. It's a, a lot of what we've seen over the last few years confirms what I would see as French instincts about the importance of economic and industrial resilience, about the sort of uncertainties about the transatlantic reliance, about the fragility of globalisation. Yeah. And that analysis, um, you could have questioned that analysis before the invasion of Ukraine, but it's, in a way it's impossible now to look at the so-called rules-based international order and believe that it still functions. Mm. And, and and I think, by the way, by by um, endorsing this quote-unquote French vision of the world, I'm coming at this from as someone who's, who's in Berlin, where the events of the last year have been harder to get heads around than, than I think in Paris. You know, Germany did very well out of the post-Cold War order, was very comfortable in a world of deepening trade, multilateralism, strong transatlantic relations, and a, and a supposedly united and peaceful Europe. One of the points that I make, I've been making recently is that the death this year that caused the most ructions in Germany or that hit hardest in Germany internationally was not that of Queen Elizabeth II, but of Mikhail Gorbachev. Right. Because I think Gorbachev for Germans symbolises what felt like the kind of resolution of German history and the country's place in the, in the centre of Europe between East and West. And you know, Gorbachev's death sort of symbolises the end of that post-Cold War era and, and something a lot more challenging that I think it is still taking Germans some time to get used to. And, and I th that's kind of where I wanted to go now, because clearly, as you've just illustrated, Germany's industrial and trading um, sort of might is to some extent based on access to Russian energy and, and Russian markets and so on, or not, not exclusively, of course. Mm. But equally, France, in its own way, whilst Macron might have been argued to be right in his sort of assessment of the global dangers, certainly at times this year, it's not clear that Europe, and certainly Western Europe, 
knew what the right approach would be with Putin. That there, you know, Macron himself talked about you know avoiding humiliation, but ultimately uh, the sort of full-throated support to Ukraine because it's a bulwark of the fundamental system of sort of democracy and the rule of law that that we all enjoy in Western Europe doesn't seem to have been there either in Paris or Berlin. Is, is that fair? Yes, I think it is. And I think it's also fair to imply that France and Germany have not stepped up with military aid in the way that, for example, Poland or the UK, let alone the US, have done. Yeah. Um, and that remains the case. I mean, here in Germany, we're still waiting for the government to send the battle tanks that the Ukrainian government says it, it needs. Macron, I think, has been on, as they say, a journey about some of this stuff. Um, but I do think that his instincts, his instincts are, as I write in the essay, quite deeply rooted in the French foreign policy establishment. He was influenced, particularly early on in his presidency, when he was still relatively green as a foreign policy president, by the likes of Jean-Pierre Chevonnement and Hubert Védrine, who are both figures from the Mitterrand era, yeah. and very much rooted in what Macron himself calls the Gaulle Mitterrandist tradition in French foreign policy, which is very much um, independence, freedom of manoeuvre, France as a so-called puissance d'équilibre, or a sort of balancing power, power. And that that tradition plays out quite strongly as a force driving Paris towards Moscow, or at least the idea of France as a bridge between the rest of the West and 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 Russia, which yeah. of course is, is, is rooted in, in, in de Gaulle's um, foreign policy presidency. Um, so I do think that that is, it is a powerful kind of pull in both France and Germany. And by the way, I think in both cases, it has been tied up with a certain slightly dismissive attitude towards the countries between Germany's eastern borders and Russia. So mm. Poland, the, the, all the rest of the Visegrad group, the Baltics. Um, I do think that is slowly starting to change. Um, and you saw this, for example, with Macron's European political community or the, the European political community that he helped set up, which is this new structure for strategic dialogue, both between between the EU and non-EU member states. Um, I do think there's a there's an emerging recognition in Paris that there needs to be new openings to Eastern member states within the EU. Um, we're seeing that in Berlin as well. Schultz gave, a, a, I thought, quite a good speech at the end of August in which he acknowledged that the um, centre of gravity in Europe is moving eastwards and acknowledged the need for a better relationship between Berlin and, for example, Warsaw or the Baltic capitals. Um, so I think sort of there's, there's a there is a shift, but it's it's a slow one, and, and I think it's a slow one because it 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 requires both France and Germany to confront really deep rooted elements of their foreign policy philosophy. And I suppose then what you've said there seems to me to come to the heart of the problem. That shift seems to be going more slowly than events on the ground allow for. I, what I'm getting at here is this feeling that uh, Europe is allowing itself to be left behind by what's really happening in the field in Ukraine and, and therefore globally. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, that's been the case really since the 24th of February. I mean, the the extent to which the US has led and dominated the West's response to the, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine is, is remarkable and I think very concerning for those of us in Europe who recognise that the continent needs to step up and do more to provide its own security. But as I say, I think progress on that is slow. It has now just become accepted that the US is the one um, shaping the West's response and shaping the West's support for Ukraine. Um, I do think, you know, with, with a different president in the White House, Zelensky might no longer be in power, frankly. And 
I think that the best we can perhaps hope from Europe in the short to medium term is is that it plays a leading role in plans for the reconstruction of Ukraine after the conflict, whenever that is. And I think there is a, a willingness to, to put it on the path, long term path to EU membership. So I think it's you're right. Europe has not stepped up. That's very concerning. I think next year needs to be the year in which Europe recognises or starts to learn the lessons, frankly, of the last um, 10 months. But I do think there is there is a willingness to, to, to play a more leading role in repairing and restoring Ukraine whenever the conflict comes to an end. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So maybe it'll be Ukraine which saves Europe, both from Russian imperialism and from Europe's own inability to be the geopolitical actor it needs to be in this disordered world. Of course, enabling Putin and his cronies isn't just about the Germans building the Nord Stream pipeline to channel Russian gas into their factories. It's also about the sophisticated money laundering platform offered by the British for Russian kleptocrats with seats in the House of Lords thrown in, or the passports for sale in Cyprus and Malta, or the weapons shipped by France to Russia after 2014 when an embargo was supposed to be in place, or the funding sought by Italian politicians from Kremlin-linked financiers. Most of Europe, and some in America also, have showed their craven weakness. And for the last 20 years, as Putin has plotted and meddled in our countries, we've largely looked the other way. So now that Ukraine needs us to supply it with weapons, we shouldn't forget that it is helping to cure us of a dangerous addiction to dirty Russian money. The loyalty to Ukraine is defined by one's values. Ukrainian identity now is not based on uh, ling ethno-linguistic component. Uh, Ukraine has so many different ethnicities and uh, Russian language is widely spoken. Basically, all of Ukrainian population is bilingual. What makes one Ukrainian is not that his ethnicity is Ukrainian or that he speaks a Ukrainian language. The loyalty to Ukraine is defined, defined by one's values, by actually the understanding that human dignity is important, that freedom is important, that democracy is important, and that the ability to make a free and independent choices is important. That last point you made there, I, it feels so important because uh, there is at a global level, there appears to be this 
crisis of confidence in the concept of liberal democracy. I mean, I just think about the World Cup unfolding at the moment in Qatar, and you see, just for example, you know, the Gulf states at a time when energy prices are sky high, uh, able to manipulate politics in Western countries, able to host these amazing sporting events, uh, able, as Saudi Arabia has done, really to kind of dictate terms to America. Uh, you know, rather than in the old days, perhaps America would would ask the Saudis, you know, to pump more oil. The Saudis say, well, we don't need to do that if we don't want to. And and then, of course, there's the wider question of the rise of China and, and the, this sort of great power rivalry between an autocratic state and a democratic state. So is Ukraine the test case of how democracy and human dignity can triumph? Absolutely. I think that the outcome of this war will define in many respects the future of uh, global democracies. And I think the problem, you know, like I've been here in the UK just for two months, but I have an experience of living in other EU country. And, and you know, the, my observations are that many people in, democ- in democratic countries, they are taking things for granted. They are taking their freedom for granted. They are taking democracy for granted. Uh, uh, well, it's probably good because it means that people have been living for a decade in, um, well, in stable, you know, relatively, but still quite stable uh, democracies without major upheavals and, uh, you know, with peace. So I think uh, what Ukrainians are doing now, well, hopefully this makes at least some people in, in democratic countries to reassess what they are taking for granted and to see that freedom is not free that people are literally dying to defend their right to live in a free and independent state. And, uh, you know, that people are uh, killed in torture chambers, in, uh, uh, you know, they are uh, abducted, they are raped, they are executed just because they do not accept the autocratic rule. They do not want to, to be silenced and they do not, you know, want to uh, live under this uh, totalitarian dictatorship that Russia is. So hopefully... This will help to reassess um, to some, you know, citizens of global democracies uh, how important democracy is and how, that it shouldn't be taken for granted, that it should be defended. Uh, of course, it's very worrying what is, uh, uh, you know, happening. Of course, in with the rise of of China and the growth of its influence, also in economic terms, all the interdependence that there is between, especially European countries and China, but also the U.S. Um, we are seeing what is happening now in Iran uh, with the massive uprising of mostly young population. The majority of that country's population is young who do not want to live uh, in, in this oppressive regime, which cooperates very cro- closely with our other oppressive regimes, such as Russian and Belarusian and also Hungary <laughs> of Viktor Orban. Um, so yeah. definitely, I think we are at some at, at a crossroads, maybe at some crucial moment in the 21st century's history and I firmly believe that the outcome of this war uh, in Ukraine and the consequences that Russia will face for its aggression will define um, the future of democracies and autocracies and who will ultimately prevail. So let's talk about Russia. The numbers are staggering. A hundred thousand Russian troops killed in the fighting. Another 300,000 injured pushed back in Kherson, in Donbass, the Kerch Bridge to Crimea severely damaged, the flagship Moskva sunk. But in spite of all this, 
To the extent that we can get credible polling numbers, it appears that a majority of Russians still support the war. Nonetheless, there are dissenting voices, understandably mostly from Russians in political exile, and these voices are getting louder. Journalist and historian Joy Neumayer is based in Warsaw, and she saw this firsthand at a fascinating conference in late November 2022. Uh, the first Congress of People's Deputies of Russia took place in Yablona Palace, just outside Warsaw, in early November. This was a really fascinating and somewhat controversial event. It was composed of Russian politicians, all of whom are against the war in Ukraine, and almost all of whom are now living in exile. Uh, and basically, they got together to plot Russia's transformation from the moment that Putin falls from power. Basically, what could Russia look like from day zero? Joy, give us a sense of what it was actually like. Who were these delegates? What was the atmosphere? What, what was it like to be in that place? Yeah, so a few of the people who were kind of running the show were well-known fixtures in the liberal democratic emigre circuit in Western European countries. The head organizer was a guy named Ilya Ponomarov, uh, who has Ukrainian citizenship. He was the only member of the Russian parliament to vote against the annexation of Crimea in 2014, after which he fled the country. Yeah, just in terms of why uh, the Congress is controversial, um, in case it's interesting, I can briefly say that... Yeah, please, um, uh, So Ilya Ponomarov, the main organizer and financial sponsor... He made a lot of waves earlier in 2022 by expressing support for violent uprising in Russia and by claiming that there's an underground partisan army currently operating inside the country that claimed responsibility for the assassination of Daria Dugina, mm. uh, the daughter of the Eurasianist ultranationalist philosopher Alexander Dugin. Uh, Ponomarov claims to be in contact with this partisan army. Basically, nobody believes him. The most public faces of Russia's democratic opposition in exile condemned Ponomarov for this statement, notably Mikhail Khodorkovsky, uh, Gary Kasparov. And so clearly it suffered from some legitimacy problems, but uh, enough people, whether or not they agree with Ponomarov on everything, found it interesting and important enough that they wanted to attend um, because it is some attempt to discuss Russia's future in a very concrete way. Uh, what I found really interesting was talking to delegates at this event who fled Russia really recently, not, you know, from like a, a Moscow-based seat in parliament, but from local municipal councils, regional governments. And this was a story that I heard a lot you know, somebody fled the country because they either were facing criminal criminal charges for speaking out against the war in Ukraine or because they were afraid that they would be imminent. Was there was there a sense of of sort of fear and, and trepidation? Because of course, you know, even if you're outside Russia, the, the Russian state can can get to you and, and, and we know, you know, tragically they've done that in on many cases. Yeah. I would say among the people who left recently, there was definitely some sense of fear. Um, I spoke with one woman who was on a municipal council in Moscow and a close friend of hers was arrested and was given a seven year prison sentence. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard not to be quite frightened by facing that possibility yourself and by coming out publicly against the war at an opposition event like this, 
you are making it impossible for yourself to return to Russia anytime in the near future. So it feels like kind of a final act uh, to speak out so publicly, even if you're abroad. There is, of course, very little chance of really knowing what anytime soon means in practice. But Putin's reign will have to end one day. But how might this change happen? A coup? Putin, like so many of his opponents, falls out of a window or down a flight of stairs? Or an uprising, like Russia's revolutions in the early 20th century? Or just an old man dying and a country deciding to take a different path? And somewhere between the war crimes, the military failures, the sanctions and the persistent rumours of ill health, there's enough chance of change to bring delegates to the conference, despite the threats Joy speaks of. I was struck by how at this event in Warsaw, it wasn't by any means only a westernized liberal crowd. Um, Mm. There were, in fact, a couple of Russian nationalist politicians there who I'm certain supported the annexation of Crimea. Yeah. Uh, in 2014, and have subsequently, you know, <laughs> really changed their position, um, not necessarily entirely out of empathy and concern for Ukraine, but for what the war is doing to Russia, <laughs> deadlocking it into even deeper isolation and poverty and authoritarianism, and, you know, condemning so far tens of thousands of Russian soldiers to die uh, in a conflict that they didn't necessarily want anything to do with, you know, there still is a lot of potential for dissatisfaction. You know, a lot of Russian regions are very poor. um, People have stagnant incomes. And even though on the surface, it might seem that the situation is very placid and nobody's going to be rising up against Putin tomorrow. I think that the situation of the late 1980s and the fall of the Soviet Union, again, is kind of a useful reminder of how quickly things that once seemed impossible can suddenly start to appear inevitable. In 1985, most Russians, I think, considered themselves like Soviet citizens, maybe Soviet patriots to some extent. They identified with the Soviet Union. And then within the span of a few years, once this valve was opened by Gorbachev, where all kinds of discontents could be openly raised, then the process kind of started to spiral and radicalize Um, So, you know, I think if things changed at the top, if there were uh, some degree of, you know, liberalization of freedom of speech, whatever the case may be, I think the situation could change pretty rapidly, um, you know, and minds could be changed as well. Yeah. And working with that, obviously, that it would be pointless for us to try to predict how it could change. But clearly, at some point, Putin will not continue to be ruler of Russia. And that's an obvious inflection point. And that's an obvious moment for change. Um, one very plausible outcome, which I'm sure you know, you've grappled with, and probably the people you were interacting with in Warsaw, is that the the Siloviki, the, the sort of hardliners that have got rich and risen around Putin, uh, many of whom, of course, are his literally his colleagues from the uh, KGB back in the day, um, that they would just you know put Putin to one side. They would probably end the war in Ukraine. And then just carry on as normal and sort of continue this cycle. Is there a risk in that context that uh, that actually the Western world, and particularly European countries such as Germany and France, that have enjoyed a a a pretty positive trading relationship with Russia over over the years, 
would kind of say, well, that's enough. You know, we, we, we don't we don't need to change Russia. It's for Russia to change Russia. And we're just going to, um, you know, we're quite happy just to see this this sort of bunch of oligarchs in charge. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a huge risk. Um, and probably any sane observer would say that that's the most likely scenario. Um, you know, there's no question that the problem is not only Putin himself. Uh, he rules over a very tightly linked corrupt cabal <laughs> of people um, who have both political and economic power. And yeah, I, I think it's very likely that the leaders of other of Western countries would probably accept one of crony, Putin's cronies taking over uh, as a as a reasonable outcome. Um, I think for this reason, the uh, proposal that was raised at the Congress to have some kind of lustration would possibly be essential for Russia actually changing. And, you know, lustration is a very ambiguous word, but basically it means uh, rooting out some kinds of responsible officials, um, which is a thing that happened not in the former Soviet Union, but in some neighboring countries in the Eastern Bloc, like Poland and the Czech Republic, you know, because no officials ever faced any consequences in Russia. This allowed uh, organizations like the FSB to continue basically in their late Soviet form and to allow the rise of somebody like Vladimir Putin. So yeah, I think some attempt to ban people who worked for organizations like the FSB um, from holding political positions would be extremely important for Russia to have any hope of changing. Again, now it seems unlikely, but in the late 1980s, it appeared unlikely in those Eastern Bloc countries as well. So you never know. Of course, whatever happens in Russia, those who've warned about Russian imperialism in the Baltic states, in Poland, and above all in Ukraine, they will expect to be listened to this time. Here's Olga. It's a very difficult question, of course. And, uh, you know, I think, first of all, we should start talking about this, that and imagining uh, Russia, which is not an empire, and thinking how to bring that day closer. And I think, of course, it will not be possible, first of all, without Russian military defeat. So first of all, Russia must be defeated on the battlefield in Ukraine. And then, of course, the issue of denuclearization should be also put on the table because it is just unsustainable in the long term that one country is basically holding all the world hostage and no one can do anything against this country that is committing war crimes on a huge scale that starts aggression against it, its neighbors. But at the same time, this country is holding a permanent a seat in the UN Security Council and no one can do anything about that. So no leverage. So it, it's a threat to all global security order. It's not just a threat to Ukraine or Syria or Belarusian opposition who are also dreaming of a day when their country will be free. So I think it should be recognized that Russia poses a threat to the global security order in the form and shape that it is now. And one thing that hasn't changed is still this uh, imperialistic mindset, because it was there in the Russian Empire, it was there in the Soviet Union, and it continues in present-day Russia. And also another missed opportunity was to 
made a reckoning with the crimes that have been committed in in Russian Empire and then in the Soviet Union with the Stalinist crimes, while uh, you know Nazi Germany has come through the process of denazification and recognition of its crimes. Uh, there were trials on uh, the war criminals committing Holocaust and, and other terrible atrocities. Nothing similar happened with those who've done these things in the Soviet Union. Not even in history books now in present-day Russia, you will find a mention of these crimes. Well, obviously, Putin's regime was trying hard to erase that memory. So I think there should be the, this reckoning with the past on a, on a larger scale, and the recognition of um, of the crimes that were committed, you know, some sort of understanding that these things are not acceptable, that they cannot be repeated, that this is not something that can be tolerated. And, and we are not seeing that, well, definitely not on the level of Russia's authorities, but also on a wider level in Russian society. Jade McGlynn is an expert on Russian history. I spoke to her on an earlier podcast about Putin's abuse of history in justifying war. Her book, Russia's War, is due out in March, and I began this conversation by asking if, behind all this, there remains a Soviet trauma in the Russian national psyche. To me, I think the biggest issue that we, as and, and by we here, I you're off the hook, I mean sort of me and, and my colleagues who, who are sort of Russianists, um, overlooked, I think, is the extent to which the trauma of the Soviet Union has left this sort of big wound that's very that's very exploitable, that's very usable. And I think it's that I think it's that sense of that humiliation, that sense of humiliation has been able to be has been nurtured almost. I mean, Putin himself, of course, was you know put in his position by by Yeltsin. He was very involved um, in the robbery I suppose of, of Russia that happened in the 1990s and so it's been interesting to see how a lot of that humiliation and the difficulties and the personal humiliations you know of being things like being paid in gherkins or, or saucepans rather than you know the money that you actually need to feed your family how they've all been used um, very cleverly by the media and then directed just purely onto the west um, and I think that's been such a potent force and we see it in China as well I mean I'm not a China specialist but I speak to my friends who are sinologists and there's something similar there this idea of national humiliation and you know now Russia or in that case China is going to sort of avenge itself and it's doing all of this I, that's that's a very potent force I think in in national politics that's sometimes overlooked yeah and and this idea of in a way talking about the Soviet trauma that situates in really quite recent history. And maybe I'm showing my age, but you know, I, I I can remember all of that. Some people would say that there's a there's a deeper well of sort of paranoia and kind of nationalist insecurity. And people talk about the Russian psyche. What 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 would you say of that? Do, do you sort of credit that idea, or is that rather kind of essentialist? I think it is rather essentialist, and that's not. I think that's sort of how Putin would kind of see. I don't think there's something innate um, to, to Russians. I think there are ways and modes of thinking about Russia um, with, that are embed, deeply embedded within Russian culture and that have continued throughout sort of, um, you know, for, for, for centuries, such as the idea of Russia as a besieged fortress or the idea of Russia as, um, you know, this, this third Rome, this country that has a special mission, you know, in the world. Or, and that's why it suffers is because God's chosen it or because, you know, it has this special role to enlighten mankind, perhaps more for, for the Soviet era. So, of course, there are sort of entrenched ways of thinking. But 
I don't think it has to be this way. Ultimately, I think nations are constructed. I think that that doesn't mean that they're not real, but I think that people constantly kind of reimagine what it means to be a certain identity, to belong to a certain nation and what that nation represents. I think Britain's a pretty good example of that. One day, hopefully, very, very hopefully in my lifetime, um, Russia and Russians will, will reimagine what it means to be to be Russian and it won't mean having to control um, or invade other countries. It won't mean having to have this sort of one constant one-upmanship in in foreign policy, and and it won't mean having to have a strong a strong leader who who deprives you know most of the population of, of really any kind of of any rights. I think that 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 is definitely possible, but it's a choice, and it's a choice that's influenced by structural factors and by history and culture. Yeah, within that, um, I mean, thinking about sort of cultural and and political framings that Russian people, you know, engage with. There's been talk from the outside about how this war illustrates Russia's basically sort of imperialist nature, the fact that it is a a big land empire, arguably the last of the European sort of land empires. And then that leads some people to say, well, then uh, Russia needs to stop being an empire, which, you know, you start talking about separatism and the breakup of the Russian Federation and so on. What do you think, and and I'm reluctant to talk about ordinary Russians, because that's obviously a sort of false framing, but what do you think inside Russia, that sort of discussion, where 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 would that lead? I mean, first of all, it's kind of difficult as well, because so many Russians are a mix, you know, it's very difficult to just talk of sort of like ethnically pure Russians, because so many people are just yeah. a mix of, of different nationalities. I know this conversation has been quite popular in the West. And I think that to the extent that it's being continued by people who are from those regions, then great. Um, I think, of course, that's completely their right. To the extent that it's being kind of pushed by people who live in Washington, I think it's a terrible idea because the breakup of Russia, that's something that it's more just a be careful what you wish for. I mean, how yeah. does this happen? I think the best idea, certainly at first for me, I mean, if it's if it's, if it's obviously it's not my place to decide these things, but um, would be to put in place you know, a really, truly federal Russia and then from there, hopefully, for those countries that or those nations that did want to become independent, then that would grow out of that federalism. And then there would be sort of, you know, broader call and there could be, you know, properly democratic referenda that, we, you know, wouldn't cause the, the imminent collapse. Because if, you know, if Tatarstan becomes independent and the rest of Russia collapses, that's not necessarily good for Tatarstan either. So I think the important thing is... is if Russia, if if we're in a, in that position, and I think that the institutions are built and that, that there's proper federalism and a sort of proper proper decentralization in Russia. However, that said, I really, um, you know, I, I I kind of think these conversations are a bit for the birds because we're so far away. <laughs> we're so far away from that. I mean, there are so many things we have to worry about in terms of how to get air defense to Ukraine, how to ensure Ukrainians survive. I mean, I mean, in the literal sense, survive the winter. But there's a lot of talk, perhaps even anticipation, that Russia's failure basically appears likely to lead, maybe not immediately, but certainly in in some time frame, to the, Vladimir Putin's downfall. Mm-hmm. I think there are there are two points here that I'd want to address. So the first one is that we talk about this war failing, and I, I believe objective reality is on our side, but. 
whilst if you read Russian media or you sort of speak to to, to Russians sort of um, in the sort of think tank community, I suppose, I mean, the idea that that Russia isn't going to win this is still very there's not it's not one that's entertained. So uh, that's what I would say first and foremost is there's this idea that you know well, we're going to see this out because we can last longer than you, you being the West here, because they still don't afford the Ukrainians any agency, which essentially is why it's still doomed to failure. <laughs> um, but in any case, so that's just one point I would make. The second one is, I mean, with, with a personalist autocracy such as you have in Russia, of course they they seem very strong until they're not. Um, so it's always a really tricky one because. I think that, of course, like all, all, all things can come to an end. And I kind of see power structures that prop up Putin almost a bit like a balloon. So, you know, with a balloon, you, you can hit it. And all the different things that you might normally do to break something don't work. But then just one little needle and it could be completely out of the blue and it will all just completely disappear. The issue is then what happens. And I think it's it's difficult, to be honest with you, it's difficult to know. I mean, I'm not really one for predictions anyway. I, I tend to sort of study more more sort of the culture and, and narratives and, and how things are understood within different, within Russian culture. But um, I think the big issue for me is that a lot of this war is, is very much wrapped up with Russian identity, which I know is something we've discussed before. And so when that goes, there needs to be somebody with a different idea of, of what it means to be Russia and why it's good to be a Russian or why Russians belong together. And I, I don't know that anybody's going to have a more sellable idea than, than the idea that, that Putin has built, um, this sort of mishmash of, of Soviet nostalgia and Russia as a great power. I don't think that Russians are in any way willing to buy into a sort of democratic or liberal um, conception or or of themselves a sort of part of the Euro-Atlantic order. And I don't really think that anybody in the Euro-Atlantic order is, is particularly waiting for them with open arms anyway. So my worry is that even if things perhaps might get a bit better, because just clearly the war, as we discussed, clearly the war is not going to plan. So somebody might, they might try to sort of pause it. They might not have this personal obsession with Ukraine. I don't see anything sort of substantially improving in terms of in terms of Russia's position in the world and its ability to be what I would call a force for, for good. We've heard how Ukraine might not just save itself, but save Europe also. But will Russia change? Let's find out what the delegates at that conference in Warsaw had to say. Here's Joy again. This was discussed at the First Congress of People's Deputies of Russia. Basically, they came up with a very broad proposal, which would be to dissolve the Russian Federation in its current form and replace it with some kind of parliamentary democracy with more powers devolved to the local and regional level. Yeah. And an important part of this proposal um, was to say that each, you know, republic or region that is currently located within the Russian Federation, each of those would have the right to a democratic referendum that would decide whether they would join this future Russia. Um, and if this happened, you know, there would, of course, be um, some places, namely Chechnya, uh, that would secede. Um, I think there's there's no question that that would happen. Mm. Um 
There are other regions within Russia that had sovereignty movements in the 1990s under Boris Yeltsin, which he initially encouraged um, as a way to get Russia into independence and away from Mikhail Gorbachev's rule in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, and, you know, those like Tatarstan, for example, had a sovereignty movement, which was not exactly a secessionist or independence movement. Basically, they were bartering for, you know, a more favorable economic relationship uh, with the center. So I think that, you know, if some kind of restructuring were to occur, we would be seeing a lot of this, you know, a lot of negotiation um, for a more equitable, you know, distribution of resources, of political power, rather than necessarily a full-scale disintegration. We've talked quite a lot about sort of what the views of a small, albeit in some respects representative group of Russian politicians uh, have said in Warsaw. But if you had to describe a possible future Russia, a Russia that is demilitarized, democratic, uh, at ease with its neighbours, do you have a sort of vision in your mind of what that place is like? <laughs> uh, it is a little hard to envision because... It hasn't happened, you know, in the past several hundred years uh, yeah. as Russia has continued to amass more and more uh, imperial power grouped in the center from Moscow. But, you know, there there have been moments in the past where Russia has supported some degree of, you know, greater autonomy and self-determination and realization um, for the countries in its orbit. You know, in the 1920s, for example, this was like the Leninist policy of national self-determination, um, yeah. although it turned into a new form of imperial domination very quickly. It's, uh, it's difficult because there's no question that Russia is enormous. It is the dominant power in the region. It provides cheap uh, energy resources to neighboring countries. You know, they have very close economic ties. You know, it's not that Russia would uh, stop playing any role in the region, but rather that those relationships would not be based on coercion. You know, I don't think it's impossible that there could be a sort of Eastern Slavic version of the EU <laughs> where, you know, there there is a federation um, that truly is uh, decentralized and is do not dominated by any one country. With all this talk about a Slavic EU, we shouldn't forget that there's an actual EU, and as we know, it's already deeply and often unhealthily entwined with Russia, at least through its economic ties. What about those alliances? It's something I put to Jeremy Cliff. It doesn't feel to me very plausible that uh, European states, including Britain, have any real appetite to sort of tackle that underlying question. So then what is what is our future relationship with Russia going to look like? Mm. I, I, I agree. I mean, I don't know really what states like the UK can do to tackle that question because it's so it's so dependent on what happens within Russia. And that's not a state that the likes of the UK can particularly influence these days. I don't know what a kind of proactive... Well, I, su I suppose, I mean, this is sort of for the sake of argument mm. rather than me advocating it, but you could give full-throated support to Chechen separatists and mm. Karelian uh, monarchists or, or whatever it might be, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we're at that point yet, but it might be the, the direction in which things are going. I mean, I think that 2023 will be a year of accelerating centrifugal forces in the Russian, I think it's correct to say, imperial entity. It is mm. still a structure based on the old Russian empire with 
a metropole in the form of uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg and quasi-colonial peripheries. Um, and I think we will see those start to pull more and more against the power of the metropole in 2023. Obviously, it depends a lot on what plays out within the, the walls of the Kremlin among the Siloviki. Is there some sort of palace coup? Does 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 Putin muddle on? What is the what is the fallout of the big mobilization push? Is there going to be some big new offensive against Kiev early in the year, as um, Ukraine's generals are now saying? Yeah. Um, but you know, both both in terms of its in, internal periphery and it, and its external periphery, I think we will see the forces holding Russia and its so-called near abroad together weakening uh, next year. And I mean, internally, I think that means more discontent and unrest in, in the internal republics. And of course, we know that Russia has drawn disproportionately on those outlying internal republics for its mobilization. You know, it is yeah. it is, it is sending more, uh, you know, sons of Chechnya or Dagestan to the front in Ukraine than it is Muscovites. Mm. Uh, and I think that 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 is a basis for um for unrest, particularly as um you also have figures like Ramzan Kadyrov in, in in Chechnya who have um consolidated their power and, and stretch and extended their power as as a result of the war and the weakness of, of, of the Putin regime. So there's that. Um, and then you know in, in the so-called near abroad, so just beyond Russia's borders you, you know, we've already seen this year how the likes of, you know, the Caucasus, um, even on in some respects, Belarus, um, but then also Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Central Asia, how those states that were that traditionally or perhaps, you know, a decade or so ago looked quite naturally to Moscow are now increasingly turning away and 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 turning to other um, centers of power, be that the US and the EU or Turkey or China, I'm, I'm sure we'll see that process accelerate next year. And, and, you know, you will see things play out or sort of incidents and crises play out in that former sphere of influence, like uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh con- conflict between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, where Russia would traditionally have, have, have sort of stepped in and convened some form of order um, where it will no longer be able to do so. So I, I do think you're going to have both within the borders of the Russian Federation and beyond it, you will see a, a pulling away from the old imperial metropole. Yeah, but it, it feels to me that at that moment, it's very hard to imagine any European consensus because you you can expect that countries that themselves broke away from the Soviet Union, notably the Baltic states, will be uh, entirely you know, on board with the idea that the Russian Federation is is itself a imperial construct. Poland, of course, has a lot of history, as do some of the other sort of frontline states. But France and Germany, I'm sure, don't for one second want to even entertain uh, this possibility. So, how does Europe navigate that? Yeah, I think I think it's hard to overstate the historical sort of emotional force of feeling in the states of the EU that used to belong to the Soviet sphere. Um, yeah. I was in Tallinn earlier this year to interview the Prime Minister there, Kaya Kalas, and she shows visitors to her office this wall of um, portraits of former Prime Ministers in Estonia who, uh, before the Second World War, and points out that all but one met their death at the hands of the Soviets. Um, and and, and, and wow. so there is, there is this very strong sense of, of Russia as, as an imperial entity and an imperialist entity which I just don't think is shared in most of Western Europe. And I think we'll see that also in terms of what's going to happen in Ukraine. You know, if Ukrainian forces continue to make advances and, you know, the the prospect of them moving into occupied Crimea um, arises seriously, that could also be, you know, a big dividing line between, between those Europeans who 
see this as Ukraine rightfully retaking its um, territory from an imperialist aggressor versus those in capitals like Berlin and Paris who feel that that's the time to press the Ukrainians to move to the negotiating table. So I think there's a lot of potential for division. And in fact, just more generally, I think in, in the so-called global West, I think, I think you know, this year, 2022, has been one of unexpected resilience. I think next year we will see more fractures, whether it's to do with tit-for-tat protectionism, whether it is differences over China, where I, where I think there is also an obvious growing gulf between the US and certainly Western Europe, um, whether it's over the end game in Ukraine, um, whether it's over the tech, the so-called tech war, I, I think we will see more fractures in that alliance than we have this year. Perhaps the hardest question of all here is whether the Russian Federation itself can last. And as Jade mentioned, we have to be careful what we wish for with the idea of Russia breaking up. It's very difficult to imagine that happening without introducing even greater chaos into this age of anarchy. And that would include the chaos of a nuclear armed state in full collapse. In a way, though, this, this goes further than Ukraine because it, it seems to me... I suppose this is a doomsday watch perspective, but Ukraine is emblematic of a much bigger problem, which is a global order that's broken down. Mm. Uh, you have uh, an emboldened China. You have Russia. Ultimately, it may have destroyed its uh, trading and economic relationships with Europe, but it hasn't suffered at all in, in its e existing and deepening relationships in Asia in spite of what it's done. And as a question for Europe, but also for, you know, for Britain, which sadly doesn't normally count as Europe these days, of what do middling countries do now in this disordered world? Because obviously, you know, the, the, the Cold War era, it was simple. You, you, you picked a side and then you backed that side. You know, Europe might come up with some laudable sort of in debt instrument. And of course, it's, it's well placed physically to play a role in the reconstruction of Ukraine. But that doesn't really tackle the the much deeper underlying questions about Europe's place in the world and actually how the world itself tries to regulate itself. No, it doesn't. Um, and I don't know what it would take, frankly, now for, for, for Europe to take the great leap forward that it needs to on this front. And, and by the way, that does include the UK as well as the EU. I've been trying to sort of find a framework for thinking about this over the course of the year, because it seems to me that often the commentary ends up being very binary. So we've seen yeah. over the last of two or three years, there's been, we've had moments where it's the death of liberalism or the, the, the beginning of the Westless era was one phrase used at the start of 2021. Yeah. Uh, we hear about the new Chinese order. And then sometimes it's the West is back. And this is the great the right. return of the West. And I feel, I feel that, you know, uh, readers or listeners trying to follow these sorts of arguments end up getting a sort of a, a case of discursive whiplash where they're kind of, you know, it's your pull between these 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 these, these very primary coloured um, arguments about the shape of the world order, and and I've tried to kind of off, offer something a bit more nuanced it, with with what I'm calling the idea of a Westish world or Westishness, which is kind of recognising that the US is still the world's preeminent power, you know, technologically, economically, militarily, in the in its alliances which I think we have seen this year, and it has mm. perhaps disproven some of the most gloomy narratives that we saw in 2021, particularly around things like January the 6th in Washington, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, it was a year of gloomy takes on the West, um, but also that acknowledges that we are in some sort of transitional era. You know, we are no longer in that post-Cold War era where of, of, of unchallenged US 
dominance. We are moving to some new era. There is no longer a balance of global power. Things are in flux. Um, But trying to kind of chart that transitional territory that we're moving through um, from the post-Cold War era to something else and its traits. So traits like, for example, um, the West as a whole's over-reliance on US power for its security, um, the kind of shift to a more politicized globalization, the sort of limits of autocratic states without sufficient checks and balances, which I do think is a reality of this era, both in, you know, we've seen that with the failings of the Russian military in Ukraine, we've seen it with the failings of the zero COVID strategy in China, and the new role for so-called pivot states. So the likes of Saudi Arabia, Kazakhstan, Turkey, which can sort of, you know, orient themselves quite in a quite mercurial way according to where global power is and, and, and sort of sees opportunities. So I think those are all examples of traits of this Westish landscape. And I think that might be a better way of looking at it than, than this all or nothing, either the West is doomed or the West is back kind of approach. In 2016, a European country decided that it could teach the world a lesson about sovereignty and independence. I'm talking, sadly, about the delusional egomania of the Brexit debate, a sort of freedom cosplay for cynical men with a World War II complex. How hollow those words sound now, as we watch a European country's population fight and die for those ideals in reality, not some Oxford Union version, but the actual freedom, sovereignty and independence you need to choose your own country's future which might include a choice to be a member of the European Union. As we bring this season of Doomsday Watch to its conclusion, what can we learn from Ukraine? The extent of change and of transformation that Ukraine has undergone since the Revolution of Dignity, since the Euromaidan, and since Russia first launched its uh, invasion in the spring of 2014, is remarkable. It's extraordinary. So many reforms have been done on so many levels, starting from fight against corruption to, you know, transparency of public procurement, uh, military reform, uh, Ukrainian army that it was getting closer and closer to NATO standards, better equipped, better trained. We are seeing the results now on the battlefield. And uh, of course, also the strengthening of Ukrainian civil society, uh, the media activists, uh, uh, human rights organizations. Um, And the new generation was uh, growing also in Ukraine, you know, children who were uh, maybe at school when uh, the revolution of dignity was happening in 2013 and 2014. And now they are adults and some of them are on the battlefield now defending Ukraine. So, and those children, they have grown up with a completely different set of values, different from uh, definitely their uh, peers in Russia. And and those values were a commitment to freedom, a commitment to democracy and a commitment to the notion of um, human rights as something that uh, should be defended and something valuable. And also the feeling that you have power. Every single individual has agency and is able to have an impact. Doomsday Watch was written and presented by me, Arthur Snell, and produced by Robin Lieburn, with the assistance of Jacob Archibald. The music was by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production. 
My heartfelt thanks goes to all of our brilliant contributors, but above all to you, the listeners, and particularly our ever loyal patrons. Your support makes these programs possible. Those patrons get episodes early and additional content. A few special seasonal gifts in the form of full interviews with our stellar guests are actually on their way to you right now. If you'd like to become a Patreon, you can do so for as little as £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you in the new year.